Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So we continue our gleaning series through the book of Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you are, uh, do not have a Bible, just flag one of the men coming up the aisle right now with uh, Bibles and they'll put one into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord to you today. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. And also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given them every green herb for food, and it was so. And then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the place. Um, at your feet that is always available to us. And Jesus, the portion that Mary took, and all of the demands of life, the chaos of life, all of the pulls and the distractions of life, the one thing that is needed. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word this morning, that it wouldn't be some abstract uh, lesson, but that we would enjoy it by your Holy Spirit in fellowship with you and is receiving it from you, Lord, as indeed it comes right from your word. And so give us that, that place this morning. We thank you for your word, your voice in this world, and the privilege of having your truth spoken into our lives. We pray for this work of your spirit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The title of the book of Genesis, Genesis, it, uh, Genesis is a Greek word and it means origin or beginning. And uh, without the revelation that is contained within the book of Genesis, we would be uh, completely at dark, in the dark concerning uh, so many things in life. I don't think that we would be able to make any sense at all, uh, a real sense of the world that we live in at all, uh, without the revelation that is found there. And this morning, I think that we come to what is perhaps the most important revelation of all. Uh, for each of us individually, it is certainly the most uh, personal. The context of our passages is that God has created, at this point, the heavens and the earth, verse 1. He brought uh, time into existence in the beginning. Uh, he created space. Uh, he created the heavens. 
Uh, and then matter, he created the earth and the time, space, and matter, all of it brought into existence by his voice. And then in verses 22 through 27, rather, uh, of Genesis chapter 1, he provides us with a, a greater uh, description of, of how he did all of that. And then in verse 26, on the seventh day, we come to the account concerning what is the crowning achievement of God's creation, and that is the creation of man. Uh, I think that uh, in the current kind of climate, intellectual and, you know, whatever kind of climate we're in the middle of in the United States of America, uh, that a, a statement like that can be considered uh, uh, arrogant, it can be considered to be egotistical, uh, but if you doubt me on the fact that mankind is the pinnacle, the acme of God's creation, after this uh, description of the creation of man in chapters 1 and 2, uh, second only to the Bible's focus uh, upon God uh, in uh, the, the Bible, man now becomes the great central focus, not only of Genesis, but the entire Bible. Uh, the atmosphere is not the focus, uh, the uh, uh, land or the sea is not the focus, the plant life is not the focus, the sun, the moon, the stars are not the focus of the Bible. Uh, the animal life, whether birds or uh, fish or zebra or elephants or pandas or uh, dogs or cats, none of them are the focus of the remainder uh, of the book from chapter 1 uh, on. Man is unique in the midst of God's creation. This passage that we've looked at here this morning, and we'll put our, our main focus upon verses 26, 27, and 28, it tells us that man was created by God. We're provided a little more insight into all of this in chapter 2, uh, verse 7, where we're told, and God formed man from uh, of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so we're told that man's physical body was formed by God and that our bodies were formed uh, from the earth. The Hebrew word that is used there for uh, formed, uh, it describes the work of an artist. It describes the work of a potter uh, shaping a beautiful vessel uh, from clay. It is interesting to realize that uh, the same 17 elements that make up the soil, make up uh, the earth, also make up the human body. Uh, and all of that is in, completely in line with God's revelation here in the book of Genesis. We're told that uh, man became a living being through the breath of God. And uh, in other words, God has the ability to do what no human potter could ever do with clay, and that is the ability to impart life uh, into his uh, work. Now, exactly what the fullness of this was that God imparted uniquely to man, as opposed to what he imparted to the rest of his, his creation, including uh, the animal kingdom, is uh, communicated in, in chapter 1, verse 27, that man was created in the image of God. So that raises the question, and it's an important question to consider. 
And that is exactly what does it mean that man or mankind was created in the image of God. It cannot mean that uh, God is uh, five foot uh, ten inches tall and 170 pounds. Uh, it cannot mean that we were created in the image of God in any kind of physical sense at all because God the Father does not have a body. Uh, he is spirit, the Bible teaches us. Jesus declared to the woman at the well, uh, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for God is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, being created in the image of God, it certainly means that Adam and Eve uh, had characteristics of, of God that were imparted to them by God that are not shared by the rest of creation, that are not shared by uh, the animal kingdom. And I think one way to, uh, to start to think about how are we uniquely created in the image of God is to simply then note all of the things that make human beings different than the animal kingdom and to realize that those things are things that were imparted to us that are a part of God's image uh, in us and upon us. We certainly possess a vastly superior intellect to the animal kingdom. You'll notice that zebras don't have libraries. Uh, apes are not creating uh, 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 iPhones uh, uh, or uh, these kind of, of technology. They have no universities to speak of. Uh, we possess a range and a depth of emotion that is completely unique to us. We possess a capacity to reason and a capacity for decision-making that transcends instinct. Uh, the instinct that marks the decision-making and, and reasoning uh, of the animal kingdom. We possess a depth of mo moral nature, uh, of conscience, a, a, a self-conscious reflection in life that is unique to us. It allows us to make uh, moral judgments with a nuance and a depth that far excels instinct. We possess a creative a capacity that is far beyond the animal uh, kingdom. You'll notice there are no uh, museums, there are no art galleries uh, in the animal kingdom. We possess, uh, in, 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 but the, the crowning glory uh, of man is our unique capacity for a relationship with God, beyond God simply being our Creator. You notice in verse 28 that God speaks to man. Here we have the capacity unique to man to hear God, uh, to uh, understand God, to obey God's voice, to know and relate to God personally uh, in a relationship uh, with God that goes far beyond the creator-creation relationship. Uh, when you look into the eyes of your dog, uh, gazing up at you in the morning. Uh, you never see any indication that that dog is contemplating the meaning of life. 
uh, uh, the, the, or, or even that it's contemplating all of the things that it has to get done that day and will it be able to get to all of those uh, things. Now it has no plan at all. It has no list at all to begin the day. Uh, it doesn't contemplate the meaning of life. It's just simply happy to see you and is wondering when you're going to feed it. And this is characteristic of the entire animal kingdom. In other words, anybody can recognize the uniqueness of man in creation exactly as Genesis uh, states. Uh, but uh, I agree with all of that, but I think that all of that is, is true in a, uh, under a larger umbrella. I think all of that is contained in what is the most satisfactory explanation for us being created in the image of God that I've ever heard. And, and that is that the recognition that God is a trinity uh, and He is a triunity. And it is interesting to note that uh, when God talks about man being created in the image of God, he, as we'll see in a moment, he does so in the context of the triunity of God. And so the Bible teaches that God is a trinity or triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we have been created, Adam and Eve were before the fall, we were created an inferior, inferior trinity of spirit, soul, and body. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Spirit, our relationship with God was in the realm of the Spirit. Spirit, soul, and body. You remember that God spoke to Adam and Eve, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks. He declared to Adam and Eve, of every tree in the midst of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of that, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Very next scene in the Bible, chapter 3, they are at the foot of that tree, they partake of the forbidden fruit, and they died. How did they die? Uh, they certainly didn't die physically. Our presence in this room here right now is an indication of that. How they died is they died spiritually, cut off from the relationship with God that they were created for. And there is only one solution to the catastrophe of this condition, the condition of a spiritual death, and that is the necessity of a spiritual birth. And that is precisely why Jesus said, uh, unless a person is born again, then we will not be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And he taught that in that very same context that if we will trust in him and believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins and salvation and make him our Savior, that the Holy Spirit then comes into our life, we experience a spiritual birth, and now we have regained the capacity for relationship with God that Adam and Eve once had, uh, but then lost in their sin uh, in uh, the garden. Paul writes himself of this restoration that's true of every Christian and, and the triunity of man, an inferior trinity, when he declares in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. 
Now, having brought up the Trinity, uh, or the Bible's teaching of the triunity of God, its description of the fact that there is one God, but that God is manifested in three uh, persons, uh, the Father, Son, and uh, the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice in verse 26, it plainly declares, uh, then God said, let us, you can circle that in your Bible, that's plural, let us make man in our, again plural, uh, circle it, uh, in our image according to our, circle it again, likeness. We see a plurality that's being described here in verse 26. And so it raises the question for us, that is, who is this us and this hour and this hour uh, that God is talking to and talking about? Uh, most Jewish literature that I've read on, on this verse explains that uh, uh, God speaks of us and He speaks of our uh, in this verse concerning the creation of man. Uh, that when he uses uh, these plural terms, that he is talking to angels. And they do that for the simple reason that they don't want to see any support in the Old Testament Scriptures uh, for the deity of Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit, and, and with that then uh, a foundation for the Trinity or the triunity uh, of God. One group, uh, Jews for Judaism, uh, goes so far as to say in their interpretation of this verse, uh, one possible reason for the use of the plural on the part of God uh, is in order to manifest His humility. God addresses Himself to the angels and says to them, let us make man in our image. It is not that He invites their help. But as a matter of modesty and courtesy, God associates them with the creation of man. And this teaches us that a great man should act humbly and consult with those lower than him. Uh, of course, all of that is complete nonsense. And, uh, and, and that kind of an explanation really accuses God of a false humility and really of, of deception because he doesn't want to hurt the feelings of the angels and because he doesn't want them to feel inferior or to feel left out. But the fact of the matter is they are inferior. Uh, and they are infinitely inferior uh, to uh, uh, God. But God cannot be speaking to angels. It, it's amazing uh, how the Bible will open up to us if we will simply read the next verse. And all you have to do is read in the very next verse, in verse 27, for absolute clarity, and so God created man in His own image. Uh, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. And so clearly man was not as God explains to us. He interprets verse 26 in verse 27. Clearly man was not created in the image of God and angels. Uh, we were created in the image of God. He declares it twice in verse 27 and uh, three times if we include his declaration in verse uh, 26. Later in chapter 5, verse 1, the Holy Spirit declares the same thing again. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. 
And so clearly this conversation that is occurring in verse 26 is a conversation that is occurring within the Godhead. Well, uh, someone might say, well, what about the great uh, Shema of of Deuteronomy chapter 6? Doesn't it plainly teach uh, that there is only one God? Uh, And let me read uh, the Jewish Shema to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so indeed it does teach that there is one God and no Bible-believing Christian would ever declare that there is more than one God. Uh, We believe that the Bible teaches that there's one God manifested in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing about that Deuteronomy passage is this, is that the word that is used for one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, uh, is the word echad, the Hebrew uh, word. And the word echad, it means one, but it speaks of a compound unity. There's another Hebrew word that God could have used there to describe himself and uh, that uh, would describe an absolute one, uh, an indivisible one, and that is the word yachid. Uh, but, and if God had used the word Yahed in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, then all talk of the triunity of God would have been completely uh, eliminated. But God purposely does not use the Hebrew word Yahid. He uses the word Echad to describe God. It is also fascinating uh, to realize back in Genesis 1-1, as we studied last week, that the Hebrew word that is used for God there is the word Elohim. It's fascinating because in the Hebrew language, the name for God in the singular is El. Uh, Elohim is a plural name for God. In the Hebrew language, whenever you want to make something uh, plural, you add an im to it, an im to it. So you have a cherub, but when there's more than one cherub, they are the cherubim. Uh, when you have one seraph, it is seraph. But when you have multiple uh, seraphs, you have seraphim. And this is how the Hebrew language uh, uh, operates. And, and, uh, uh, and so it speaks of God here of the fact that God is one, and yet somehow plural. Uh, Additionally, it's very significant that although the name Elohim uh, that is used is plural in its form, uh, in in all of the rest of Genesis uh, chapter 1, it is constantly accompanied by verbs and adjectives that are in the singular. Uh, For instance, in Genesis 1-1, the verb create is singular. And and this is the way it is all the way through the entire uh, chapter. And and so you have uh, this combination of plural and singular together, and, 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 and it is all intended to communicate two truths about God that seem contradictory but are not. And that is that God is somehow plural and, and yet one. 
And so in Genesis 1-1, God describes himself as a plural one. In Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27, God records a conversation for us that involves uh, multiple persons within the Godhead. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when God gives the great Shema to the, uh, the Jews in order to reinforce the fact that He is one, He's careful to use a word that speaks of a compound unity. And, I, and uh, this is like a major wow related to uh, uh, the Bible. And in all of this, even back in Genesis 1-1, what God is doing here, and it is so important for us as Christians to understand that, beginning all the way back with the very first verse in the Bible, God begins to lay a foundation for what he knew he would continue to develop then in the remaining revelation of his word, and that is that there is one God, but that he is triune, that he is made up of a triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, why spend the time on that? Shouldn't that be a part of the Sunday evening service? Aren't you supposed to just tell us on Sunday morning how wonderful we are and how God is going to take care of us? Um, I hope God smites me uh, before uh, that is the preeminent thought that I have on a Sunday uh, morning or a Sunday evening. The fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us as Christians needs to not only understand that this is the truth about God, but to understand the, the biblical foundation for it. Because you and I, if, you're, if your view of the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit, your view, uh, your belief in the Trinity has not been challenged yet, it means you're not sharing your faith with people. Because you live in a world, as, as most of us know, we live in a world as Christians that reject Christianity on the basis of our belief in the Trinity or the triunity of God the deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This includes uh, virtually all Jews. It certainly involves, uh, includes all practicing uh, Muslims, all Jehovah Witnesses, all uh, Mormons. And then when they challenge us, we can be at a loss for words, uh, even have our faith uh, shaken uh, related to it. But the evidence for the uh, Trinity and uh, Jesus' claim to be divine, to be one with the Father, it begins not only in the very first chapter of the Bible, but in the very f uh, first verse uh, of the Bible. We're told that male and female, uh, He created them there in verse 27. In other words, everything that I've said here, when He's talking about man at this point, uh, in Genesis 1, he's talking about man in the sense of mankind. Everything that he has declared here is true of both men and women, male and uh, female. Uh, there's uh, more to be said about God's mention of uh, only two sexes uh, here in this passage, but that'll have to wait for uh, a future time. Notice God's commission to mankind, and the commission is given in verse 26 and in verse 28 as well. And God gave mankind dominion over the animal kingdom, 
over the fish uh, of the sea and, and, and all, all waters, over the birds of the air and, and of, uh, of the land animals. And, and that dominion would have been exercised perfectly in the Garden of Eden before the fall of Adam and Eve in, and their sin in, in that garden. Uh, but we still uh, have that, that dominion that has been imparted to us, and, and we possess that dominion even after the fall uh, over the animal kingdom, uh, but how we exercise it today is, is oftentimes very flawed and, and, and broken, as, as everything else is in uh, post-fall. But still, it's important to recognize that we possess a capacity to dominate the world in a way that no part of the animal kingdom uh, does. Why if everything began and it was survival of the fittest in the evolutionary process, and why would something as weak and feeble as us, uh, if we were just members of the animal kingdom, uh, be able to uh, come to dominate the world in which we do? We have no claws, we have no uh, fangs, we have no uh, weaponry, we have no scale upon our, our body for protection. I mean, any one of a thousand animals you would think as, uh, would be predisposed by nature to end up dominating the world and even making us extinct as, as human beings and in a, a process uh, uh, like that. And yet we look around the world and we see that the world isn't ruled by brown bears. Uh, it is ruled and it is dominated by us. And when you look around the world, you don't see zebras or lions or dogs building cities. Not one. I'm open to one. We don't see a single one. We don't see them developing art or culture. We don't see them worshiping God, uh, their Creator. And all of this is a testimony to the precision of, of the Genesis uh, account. Notice that he, uh, in verse 28, that God blessed the man and woman, telling them to be fruitful and multiply. And here he speaks of the sexual relationship between uh, a man and a woman. We'll talk about this in a, a future time, possibly here in the next couple of weeks. But it is important to realize that though God calls on them to be fruitful and multiply, that the fulfillment of this relationship, the sexual relationship between uh, a man and a woman, it does not occur until he creates Eve and then establishes the institution of marriage, which we'll talk about another time. Notice that God, in verse 31, his commentary concerning his creation upon its completion, including man, he declared that it was not only good, but he declared it to be uh, very good. And again, remember that he said this about the world uh, before the fall. He said this before Genesis chapter 3 that, that uh, describes the, the, uh, the, the fall of, of man and uh, everything changing as a result of it until the world that we are in now is not what God intended it to be at all. And we'll talk about that again in the future. There is so much we'll get to uh, in the future. And, and so, here to a, a, a practical application related to our lives. Here you have Genesis chapter 1, it ends with man. And it ends with man not only created, but uniquely 
uh, in creation, uniquely engaged in a living, speaking, personal relationship with God. And that is the very thing that man uh, is, is, was created for, was for that relationship. There's a song that's uh, sung uh, to God that's recorded in the other end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation that captures this uh, perfectly. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. And it declares, uh, The four and twenty elders fall down before Him, that is God, uh, that sat on the throne, and worship Him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things. And then here it is. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Uh, we were created by God and created for his uh, pleasure. We've been created to bring pleasure to God uh, in a uniquely as human beings in a personal relationship uh, with Him. Now, uh, since we've been created for relationship with God, until we are engaged in that relationship, there will always be an emptiness in my life as a result. There will always be that gnawing sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that is because there is something more to life than I have experienced, and it is the most important thing of all, the very thing that I've been created for, and that is a relationship with God. And you watch people all over the world run, and I know all about it, run from one occupation to another, one get-rich-quick scheme uh, to another, one hobby to another, one fad to another, one interest uh, to another, one relationship to another, one philosophy or uh, religion to another. And all of it is a testimony to a search within our lives. It's all a testimony uh, to that emptiness and to our search for some kind of an ultimate fulfillment in our lives concerning the meaning of life and the purpose of life, and to somehow enter into that and then experience uh, the peace that we're confident that once we discover it uh, will become ours. It has been very well said that each of us has been born into this world uh, with a cross-shaped hole in our hearts that can only be filled uh, by Jesus Christ Himself. That nothing else in the world, not all of the world put together, if it were be, be poured into that hole, could ever satisfy uh, that emptiness, that loneliness, that longing that, that we uh, possess. Only God. Only Jesus can satisfy uh, that need and to fill that emptiness. And until we're saved and we're reconciled with God, there will always be a fundamental 
loneliness in our lives. A loneliness, that, that sense that I've been created for even more in terms of relationship. And a loneliness that no husband, no wife, no children, no parents, no friends can uh, ever satisfy or, or uh, bring uh, to some kind of a, an end, as it relates, uh, to, uh, to our, our lives. We'll always be lonely and empty at our core at our, our deepest level until we enter into that relationship that we've been created for with God. St. Augustine said it perfectly when he said so many years ago uh, concerning God, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. Rest is a wonderful thing. And uh, I don't think the average person is even remotely conscious of the restlessness that is in a human life until the, we enter into the rest that is found uniquely in God. And how we uh, educate ourselves to exhaustion, we relationship ourselves to exhaustion, we drug and drink ourselves uh, to exhaustion, we look in all these different places to try and satisfy this longing that is within us. And all of this is very, very personal for me. I never uh, get tired of speaking about this very subject because when I became a Christian, the thing that brought me to Christ was not my sin. Uh, it, it probably should have. But that wasn't the greatest concern that I had in becoming a Christian. The thing that drove me, uh, the thing that caused me to turn to God and to begin to seek Him out and ultimately put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and then to follow God was this search for the meaning of life. What is the purpose of life? And here I am at the uh, age of 25, and I'm looking around, and, and uh, Karen and I were married now for a number of years. We had a house that we were buying in a lovely part of California, had two cars, both of them paid for, one child and another child on the way. And I looked at all of it, and I, and I thought to myself, all I can do is upgrade from here. And if this has not satisfied, uh, if this has not supplied ultimate meaning and purpose to life, does not explain those things for me, then I know simply uh, it doubling down in that direction is not going to provide the answer for me. And I remember telling Karen one day, I'm going back to church. And I had been raised for a time in my youth in church, so I knew where to go and went back to church and then committed my life to the Lord. And I, God did not make me to be a person that could live life and eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die to live life without understanding its ultimate aim, its ultimate uh, purpose. And this is the ultimate aim, and this is uh, the, the purpose. There's the observation of the man who declared concerning his alarm clock. It tells me when to get up, but it doesn't tell me why to get up. And only God can tell us uh, why uh, to get up. And it's the same frustration, of course, that King Solomon 
expressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. He decided, though he was raised in a godly background, that he was going to find the meaning of life under the sun, under the S-U-N. Uh, not the Son of God, but under the Son of creation. I'm going to find the meaning and the purpose and satisfaction related to these great questions in life in the context not of God, but in the context of the creation. And he searched high and low and everywhere you could possibly search uh, in, in life, and his conclusion was that life under the sun, life lived in the context of the creation without coming into contact uh, with God. It is empty, it is frustrating, and it is meaningless. And, and in Ecclesiastes, Solomon never finds satisfaction. He never finds the meaning of life in the context of the created world. But he did find it. And he tells us where he found it in the closing couple of verses of those 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. And he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, uh, for this is man's all. In other words, it is found in a personal relationship with God that is then marked by obedience to His commandments. I think that the Westminster Shorter Catechism captures it perfectly. The question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is given, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet saved, come and put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will experience a spiritual birth. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and then you will enter into the relationship with God that you have been created for and that you have been looking for all of your life and which nothing else in the world can replace or uh, satisfy. God loves you. And he made you. He is your creator but He wants to be more than your Creator. He wants to be your Savior, and He wants to be your Lord. And the stakes are enormously high. Uh, they are eternally high that you give Him that place in your life. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin think of it. Think of it, to begin a personal relationship with the God who created you and the creator of the heavens and the earth. And it's all there, just a prayer away. And then to know Him with the intimacy that comes with knowing Him as Savior and as Lord. You come forward today and enter into uh, the, the life that God has for you. I think for those of us who are saved, to just stop for a moment and maybe allow the meditation to carry us into the afternoon, this beautiful summer afternoon that we have, and to just stop for a moment and remember your life before you were a Christian. Remember that emptiness. Remember that loneliness. Remember your story. 
of how much of the world and your wisdom and your ways and experiences you tried to pour into that cross-shaped hole and none of it could satisfy and it was the grace of God that none of it could until we finally came and put our trust in, in Jesus Himself. And then to think about what happened in that moment. Yes, we still have all kinds of problems in this life. We have problems like everybody else has. God doesn't promise that we won't. But the one thing that we don't have is we don't have a sense of emptiness and loneliness as we once did. Uh, we don't, uh, aren't still on the search for the meaning and the purpose of life. And God has introduced a satisfaction, a recognition that we are home, that we are engaged in life at its highest, this side of heaven, because of our relationship with Christ. And there's just glory in. I mean, you think about the problems that we all face, the decisions that we face in life, the challenges that we face in life. But, and, but on top of all of those things, we are not dissatisfied and still in the midst of that search. God has brought this deep spiritual satisfaction into our lives. And He has blessed us immeasurably in doing so. So much to be thankful for when that search is over and that search has brought us to Him. Hallelujah. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the clarity and the beauty of this revelation You have given us in Genesis chapter 1 concerning Yourself, concerning us, related to You. And Lord, we thank You so much for the recognition, the answer that's right in the first chapter of Your book and how many people in the world spend long decades upon decades upon decades searching for the very thing that you make so plain so early in your book that all of this is found in a relationship with you, the relationship that we have been created for. We pray for each person that doesn't know you today that today they would come and surrender to you and enter into the life that you have for them. We pray, Lord, that this great truth would be at the top of our hearts and on the tip of our lips as we share with people and come into contact with them, uh, us as Christians, into their lives and recognize the search that they're in and then to be able to take what we've learned today to speak into their search. And Lord, we thank you as Christians this morning for the great priceless satisfaction that you have brought to our lives in bringing us to your Son such a successful conclusion to our search. We bless you for that satisfaction, Lord, and the meaning and the purpose that we have found in him. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.